Well, hello, Line Podcast listeners. We're back. We have a long episode today. It's Matt Gurney from The Line for Jen Gerson. We started our podcast today thinking we don't actually have much to talk about, but we got into it and we actually covered a lot of ground. We're going to talk about how the pandemic has driven some people crazy. We're going to talk about why Pierre Polyev probably has a pretty good chance of winning the next election, and it has a lot to do with liberal cluelessness. We're going to talk about Supreme Court justices using their reputations to launder the reputations of other broken institutions. We're going to talk guns. We're going to talk RCMP. Lots to come and enjoy every word of it. This is the Lions' latest episode of the Experimental Podcast. Hello, Jen Gerson. I note you're wearing sweaters. Is it sweater weather in Alberta? Uh, we have had a freak bout of sweater weather, the weather this week. It's actually, it's hilarious because Alberta Falls really are the most glorious time of year. Like they're perfect temperature, they're bright, they're sunny, the air is crisp and dry and it's fantastic. You just don't Absolutely expect gorgeous. them in early You August. just don't expect them in the like the early August. Early August is a little soon for that. So we're getting like some like a freak autumn weather snap. And it's very depressing too because some of our trees are just starting to turn yellow too. And I'm like, no. No, no, we have like another month to go before I'm even ready for that. Uh, it will get nicer again. We're going to have like 29 degrees again in a couple of days. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We... It'll be fine. So we're recording this Friday afternoon, moments before we began rolling. My phone buzzed with an alert from Environment Canada warning of extreme heat conditions. So uh -huh. we have everything that you're missing. Um, couple, uh, before we get into what we want to talk about this week, um, couple housekeeping notes we just want to mention the listeners there was something uh well you know what i mean let's just toot our own horn a little bit here like i sorry i'm just pulling up notes right now jenna if i was better organized i would have had this already but we in the last two weeks and we are admittedly on a lighter publication schedule but we just published two weeks in a row where we had all female contributors and this is something we've always wanted to do better at we we tend to be pretty open-minded we'll, we'll run content from anybody and if i can tell you in my 15 years of being an editor overwhelmingly the contributions we get are from white dudes um that's yep. it's just the way it it's, goes it's white guy confidence it's a whole thing it's it's like, amazing to watch it's like you have to you have to like push women into contributing like yes please contribute yes please oh i don't know if i'm i'm not the expert maybe you should look at my colleague blah 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 it's ridiculous and then a white man with like no credentials would come in and be like i've got a column for you 800 Boom. words 800 um, words so look we don't we don't sweat it if a lot of our contributions are coming in from white guys because believe me like i used to have hair when i began worrying about this problem and look at me now so we we take the best of the contributions that are sent to us and we when we do reach out to people we try to be more balanced we try to pick the right people to write the uh, the right topics but two weeks in a row here uh, all female uh, contributors and uh, it was melanie parody it was kristen raworth it was uh, michelle rampel garner and you so you know what is is this is are we as good at this as we ought to be and would wish to be no but we'll we'll celebrate the the victories when we get them an update as well about See, I'm trying to find the damn thing. Um, wh why can I never do this? Here we go. Okay, here we go. Here we go. This is what I was looking for. October of last year, October 21st, we ran a Q&A with Trevor Toom, an economist at the University of Calgary, about inflation. And this was... I want to read to you something I actually asked him. 
This is a direct quote from our Q&A in, uh, in October about inflation. This is me. I have an obnoxious habit, well, a series of them, I guess, but the relevant one here is that when someone admits they're wrong, I want to ask them why they were wrong. And that can seem really snotty, like I'm twisting the knife. I don't mean to. I'm just trying to felt what they got wrong. And I'm fascinated by the thought process that takes a person with the right training and all the right information to the wrong conclusion. That was what I was talking with, with Tuma about, because we were talking about inflation and how a lot of people, even in October of last year, had been, the experts had been wrong. There won't be inflation. There won't be inflation. There won't be inflation. It'll oops, be temporary. It'll be temporary. It'll be temporary. It's, and then, you know, oops, we're at 8% not. a year later. So Tomb was a really nice guy, really smart guy. We have nothing but nice things to say about him. And he oh, like us- such nice things. He's one of my favorite people in this sphere. Like he's awesome. He gave us an hour of his time. We had this great conversation and I was remembering that question I asked him because just a few days ago at the hub, uh, he published I don't want to call it an, an apologia, but he published a confession where he says, I have been wrong on inflation. And he says, my predictions were that it would not go down this year, not up. And it's going zoom. And he says, maybe it's possible that it will start going down by the end of the year. He analyzed his numbers, kind of like I said in that question to him. It's, I don't, just don't tell me you're, you were wrong. That's good. That's good for the soul tell me why you were wrong because that's where the intellectual analysis comes in and he says he over i mean i'm paraphrasing him here and he he may quibble with this but i'm trying to be fair he said he was looking very narrowly at energy energy got cream this year especially with the war in europe and he says so that was obviously something that wasn't factored in but he says the other thing is that inflation has spread beyond energy so we're looking at inflation broadly in the economy, and that is sort of what he hadn't accounted for. Now, he still says we might see energy prices start to come down this year. We might see inflation start to come down this year. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, no. And, you know, we, we mentioned this in no way to spike a football or to twist a knife, but to salute the guy because he did exactly what I like people to do. It's a lot of people don't like to admit they're wrong. But it's an but important if, thing to do. Well, and not only that, but if you're going to be in the public sphere, you're going to be wrong. It, as a journalist, as a politician, as an academic, as anything, if you're going to be in the public sphere, you know, contributing to the public dialogue, you're going to be wrong sometimes. It's just, but, it's just nobody bats a thousand. Nobody's perfect all the time, and you're, you're going to be wrong. It's just between, what it is. Between writing and going on the radio, I'm basically making predictions every day. Yeah, and you do, and, and you don't even mean to. It's just like, yeah, this is kind of where I think things are headed. You know what I mean? It's, it's if I bat ninety five. 95%. If I'm 95% accurate with a with a work month of 20 working days, I'm wrong one day a month at least. So at least mm-hmm. once a month, I'm wrong about something. So it's yeah. But I like that I, I'm, I'm applauding him not just for acknowledging that he was wrong, but taking uh, the readers into the numbers and the analysis showing what his assumptions were showing why they were wrong. That's the way to do it. So hats off to him on that one. Okay, those are the housekeeping notes. Um, Yesterday, uh, oh. Thursday, TVO.org, where, I, where I'm a columnist, I wrote a column about Doug Ford. Doug Ford made some comments earlier in the week that were bullshit. And I don't know if he's been badly briefed, if he's been misinformed. I don't know if he's trying to be overly technical, or I, I don't know if he's trying to avoid a panic. But he went out in front of a press conference, and he reassured Ontarians that the healthcare system is there for you if you need it. And it's not. You know, a few weeks ago, we had rural emergency rooms closing in Ontario. We had them closing for lack of staff. Toronto General Hospital this week 
maxed out its ICU units and it could not accept more patients. And was that, this, this isn't, these aren't COVID patients. It's just, they yeah. maxed out. Right. Okay. I mean, there is like kind of like a base level COVID burden on the hospitals, but it's not considered to be particularly huge right now. Co like, you know, I've talked about this world. COVID's loose. Like there is yep. going to be seasonal variation in this. Yep. Right now we're at a fairly low ebb for, for COVID. And I think we in, in Alberta, so we have something like 23, something like that. I, people with COVID in, in, in hospital. Maybe I should just double check that before I, I say, say that. But I don't even but know what it is in Ontario. It's, I, it's doctors, not... It's not huge. Whereas like our, our peak healthcare system collapsing COVID numbers were closer to 300. Now there's like maybe a dozen, two dozen in, in ICU. So like, it's, it's not, it's not COVID that's pushing this over the edge. I spoke to one doctor a few days ago, uh, Dr. Brian Goldman at Mount Sinai in, in Toronto. He came on my radio show. So I'll, I'll tell you what he said, because he said it aloud on my radio show. It wasn't confidential. He said, COVID's impact on the healthcare system now is real, but it's not sick patients. It's quarantined medical staff. There you go. Um, which is it's like, uh, that's a problem, but like, it's, it's important to quantify what it is. So not only is Toronto General Hospital breaking down in Toronto, but the hospital for sick kids is shutting down some units so that they can redeploy staff to the pediatric ICU. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a debate in Ontario over the last couple of weeks about what is the precise technical meaning of collapse? Like when, when healthcare, like, I know I'm not kidding. Like this yeah. is like, I'm yeah. watching seasoned public health experts, doctors, nursing experts debate on Twitter kind of going, is this a collapse? Like, what is a collapse? And I, I'm giving Dr. Goldman another shout out here. He actually kind of led the conversation and said, if we're going to be telling the public the healthcare system is collapsing, we need to be transparent with them about what that means. But what is, does that mean you're triaging? Does that mean like, you know, like this is one thing that, that really frustrated me during Alberta's sort of collapsing dialogue um, at the height of our of our of our COVID wave is that they're kept on saying, well, the healthcare systems could collapse, but they nobody really defined that. What they meant by that is that the healthcare system could be moving into triage which means yeah. that if you had an 80% chance of dying as a result of X, you probably weren't going to get access to an ICU bed. That's what they meant by collapse. It meant that critical resources were being withheld in certain circumstances. Certain circumstances. I think, well, first of all, I want, I want to break my center of the universe uh, worldview here just for a second. Um, I, I want to complete a thought, but then I want to ask you something. Mm. The situation in Ontario, as I can see, is that the treatment of imminent of care for the, the provision of care for imminently emergent patients like mid heart attack have just been shot wheeled in from car crash is still happening but icu staff levels are very low so we're probably losing patients at the margins and those patients won't show up in any database right like someone no. who's critically ill who goes to an icu we're going to be losing patients who might have survived or had a chance to survive if we had proper it's, staffing it's, it's it's only going to be um uh, visible in hindsight with statistical analysis yeah. yeah you're going to be like look we were actually we're not in a normal year we would be losing one out of Three. five patients yeah, now, now we're, we're losing one out of yeah. four sort of thing like that's yeah. going to be the how, how that's visible basically the batting average of icu staff will go down this year but we'll only be able to see that later mm -hmm. the other problem is that um anyone who is not in imminently life-threatening condition your health care is just frozen so there, there are weird stories still trickling through. Uh, a member of my own family not long ago had um, a successful test diagnosis procedure done in a matter of weeks. Perfect. Like the stars aligned. Everything was there. Like 
the test was available when it was needed. The, the, the diagnostic technician was on the ball that day. There was a surgeon available to do the procedure. So there are still good news stories coming out, but the system-wide metrics have never been worse in terms of hospital wait times, procedure wait times, ambulance offload times. And we're, and we're hearing some really horrific stories that I'm hoping that we're going to be able to do some reporting on about stuff that's being withheld from patients that normally not, would not be withheld. I know what you mean, and we're not going to say anything aloud yet. We're I not have not made any headway on that. Okay, that's fine. We're working so, on it. I'm still banging my head against that, but I haven't made any headway. Um, Fair enough. So you let wanna, me ask you. So. Is it- is it is it just Ontario? No, it's not. It's not. So even I, I spoke even to a friend in Atlantic Canada, and it's similar there. How are you guys same, doing? Out we're, west? we're seeing the same things in BC, um, and even in really wealthy Alberta. And Alberta's got money, right? Like like we've always devoted a lot of our resources to healthcare, even when we couldn't afford them. Um, but they're talking about shutting down uh, uh, certain hours of of aftercare. You know, we've had something like four hundred. I think the CBC reported we had something like four hundred and sixty um, red alerts where there were literally no ambulances available. Literally none. There's no ambulance. Yeah. Um, and then there's been also lots of reports of people being moved from ICU and from hospital into hallways. So hallway care. Now I don't want to overstate this either. Um, you know, we've always dealt with these issues. There has always been conversations about. Um, hallway hospital care and how bad that is. We've always had um, uh, uh, things like red alerts for ambulance, but definitely we're we're hitting the same crunches for exactly the same reasons. It's just like you know a system that was at capacity and and maximally efficient um, before COVID. COVID hits everybody basically burns through whatever they have in order to get through the pandemic. And now we're actually starting to see the long-term consequence of that. Doctors are on um, vacation. My own family doctor's on vacation. Uh, staff are, staff have burnt out. People have quit. They can't get new people into the system fast enough to staff a lot of these capacity issues. And as a result, you're, you're seeing these sorts of um, uh, marginal things start to happen that, that worsen the metrics overall. Um, so yeah, it's it's not just out um, Ontario. It looks like everybody's facing these problems. But if you went into COVID maxed out, you're now in deep shit. Whereas you had a little bit of wiggle room before COVID, you're maybe in less deep shit, but still in some shit. You're in the shit, but it's not as deep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, Ontario, I was going to say burning the candle at both ends, but that seems too tame. So it's like we're getting fucked two ways at the same time because we have lost... Didn't Horgan, I think Horgan made an announcement. Sorry, I'm going to look this up because okay. I think Horgan made an announcement in BC, but you you talk. About about healthcare? Yeah. Yeah, you, well, you go do the quick Google on that. What, what I'll just finish saying is the problem Ontario has is, first of all, I think per capita, we had the most vulnerable system. Like, I, I'd have to go back yeah, and check probably. 2019 metrics. But I think we, if if not, like maybe... Maybe one other province or territory might have been slightly worse, but Ontario was particularly a sitting duck just in terms of overall system size. We we had a tiny, tiny system and rel- like per capita, and we were working it as hard as we could, but there was no margin for error. And the reason we're getting it from two directions at once right now is, as I said, COVID has overall bumped up baseline system demand, right? Like the system is now busier and it will be on an enduring basis than it used to be because there's this new circulating virus and it's a nasty one. It didn't exist three years ago. Now it's all over us and it always will be. The healthcare system will always be busier going forward because COVID exists. Meanwhile, we have lost a ton of healthcare professionals. They've quit, they've retired, they've moved. They like they're working at a retail job because the hell with this. 
so we have a smaller system that like three years ago we had a system that was too small now it's smaller and there's more work to do nothing that we're experiencing here is is shocking but we're not being honest with ourselves about yeah i just want to say so so horgan paints dire picture of healthcare system quote unquote crumbling under our feet He's actually been one of the people sort of pushing for more money from the feds to try and address some of this issue. So um, it's 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 this is a nationwide issue. It's just some some provinces are slightly better off than others, but all provinces are basically feeling this crunch. I'm just seeing a while while we've been doing this, I got a a friend of mine in the Ontario government just bumped me a statement from the health minister here that is a, a recitation a recitation of. Um, everything they've done to healthcare. You know, we've, we, we've recruited this, we've spent more money on that. My column for TVO on Thursday talks about this. They're talking about inputs. Our yeah. government has yeah. spent X on this and we've hired Y new nurses and we're proud to work with the partner. It's like, dumb fucks, the ERs are shutting down. Yeah, ERs don't are tell me down. about inputs. Well, and also I, I, this is another problem where I don't necessarily think it's just about money. It's not. Right? It's about, no, it's it is not about money. We there is well, not it, it, some it, money's part of it. Money can yeah. throwing money at problems can do a lot of good, but I don't think that just throwing money at the problem fixes this problem. If the no. issue is staffing, because staffing is a is a is a long term issue, you can't just like put in a newspaper ad and say, "Look, you've increased your wages by forty percent. Come yeah. work for us again, nurses." I mean, that will that will bump your staffing levels a little, but you still need to have qualified nurses, right? Which, yeah, I mean. You had this right two years ago, one of your early pandemic columns, which is where's the national mobilization yeah. of, yeah. I mean, if, Ontario. If we, if we had nationally mobilized two years ago, we wouldn't be facing this today. If, well, maybe, I mean, nurses can take up to three years to train. So if we'd mobilized and done an expedited. An expedited nursing course that, that and maybe those nursing, nurses were not considered fully qualified, but like. We could bump them up. We could bump them up. Yep, but we didn't. And mm -hmm. two years ago, people would have thought we were weird to even suggest we should be thinking about this. But basically, during the pandemic, Ontario has graduated about 10,000 new nurses. We've also gone backward by 10,000 unfilled positions. So we're net negative, like 20,000. We're net negative 10,000 nurses. That means we're actually overall negative 20 because we've graduated 10,000 new ones. Yeah, now, A bunch of them are leaving the province to go to Atlantic, to go to Alberta, to go to the U.S., with it this is this is deep shit there is no there's no easy solution out of this here and i, I as I, i've been talking like people have been reacting on twitter to my column great reaction um i find my tvo columns do not bring out nutters in the same way that uh newspaper columns did which is maybe, yeah it's true maybe something to to think about one day but having great conversations with people and I, I had one person chide me kind of say hey matt like you said in your column that we've baked this problem in for years we can't be defeatist about this we need to be solutions oriented and I'm like, no, we can be defeatist about this. Like, I, I've got to be honest. Like, my, my job is, I'm not a cheerleader. My job is to tell you the truth as best I understand it. And it, I understand that there are things we could do, financial policy, all these things. But there are two problems. None of them are going to work quickly. And the, the second, and I think more germane problem here is everything we could do in theory, I have to apply the Canadian incompetence discount to. Yeah. It's like, you, like, don't tell me what we are theoretically capable of doing. Tell me how likely it is that our governments would be able to do that. Yeah. 
and like it's, it's just it's Lucy and the football stuff. Like it's uh, anyway. That's all I got. So basically, I don't even do we even write this up as a dispatch blurb? Like, is there anything? No, coherent? I think I think we could I think we could write this dispatch blurb because it falls into something else that I wanted to talk about, and that was um, rebuttal by listicle, which is a problem that I see particularly on on on. Look, I see this a lot on Twitter discourse, and I don't want to like overemphasize Twitter discourse. But the problem is that like all of these global think tanks will frequently come out with these broad, vague um, statements like Canada, number one place to live. Yeah. Or yeah. like Calgary, you know, once again, scoring top marks in the economist uh, 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 quality of life, blah, 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 blah. So we do really well in these really vague sort of where like do, do you want to live in a war-ridden shithole or would the ukraine Kiev, or would you like to live in toronto like you know like and 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 so canada frequently scores pretty highly on these listicles and then you have people like jerry butts who i'm going to pinpoint as being particularly guilty of this but he's certainly not the only one but people who are sort of government apologists usually who will be like canada's so broken look we're number one according to like a bunch of interns in vienna Woo! <laughs> And, and it's like, it's, it's, it's this weird habit that we have of just sort of shushing away all of our significant and worsening capacity problems by saying, well, look, our public perception globally is still really good. So therefore everything's actually fine. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's three major problems that I have. And there's a reason why this stuff is really stuck with me because that I think rebuttal by listicle is just, it's really irksome. And there's three three problems with it. One is the optics problem. Look, if you can barely afford your house, your grocery bill's going up, and your healthcare system, local healthcare system is collapsing, who gives a fuck what the economist thinks about yeah. the quality of your life and blah, blah, blah? Who cares what the World Economic Forum says about, like, who yeah, gives I'll, a shit? Like, I'll remind myself that Toronto's rated one of the world's most livable cities while lying in agony waiting for orthopedic surgery on my broken leg. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly it. You know, I'll remind myself that like Toronto is one of the best rated cities to live in when like they literally can't plow the streets on my, on my, um, uh, uh, they can't plow my streets after a major snowstorm and you, you know, semi have semi frequent garbage strikes where you have to go throw a bunch of garbage into like Christie Park, Christie pits. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but I mean, Calgary's better than Toronto. I'll give you that. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like even Calgary, for example, you know, we've got a rental rate of 1%. Like if you're coming to Calgary and you don't have, don't have a significant amount of money, good luck try, try, trying to find a place to live. It's actually a major problem right here. So these sorts of rebuttals by listicles don't address the realities of issues on the ground. And there's I, no I metric will also, attached. There's no, it's, it's no, there's it's no a metric Canadian attached. flag emoji at the top of a bunch of other European and it's, flags. And, and, and they're based on, and they're based on, and then that brings me to the second question and that is how legitimate a lot of these issues are. Like uh, people are coming up with these metrics by saying, well, your infrastructure quality is a nine out of 10. And so therefore, according to our, our math, it's blah, blah. Okay, great. Like, I'm not saying that that can be totally leg illegitimate. Sometimes that is le a legitimate way of looking at things and making comparisons. But like, again, if you have some intern in Belgium, you know, coming up with these, these metrics, these algorithms Those based Belgian on, interns. based on what, like, what, what are you basing this on? Like, how are you, how are you giving the quality of Canada's infrastructure a numeric value? Like, is it legit? Is it not legit? What's what's the what's the what's the math that's going into this that's providing these statistics for you? And like, I remember I can't remember which one, but I remember seeing there was one of these Canada's number one listicles, and then you went into the the, the meat of it, and it was like it gave our healthcare system one hundred percent. You're like, 
because I guess it's universal payer and that's what the person who was coming up with the listicle knew about Canada's healthcare system. And so there was no addressing Somebody, yeah. issues, things like wait times, health, like, like family doctor access. Like there was no addressing these sorts of deep systemic issues that we know actually exist in Canada. The transparency one. Oh my God. The people who list Canada as like having high transparency. Have they never asked the Canadian have government. Have never asked the Canadian government. We have probably some of the lowest transparency of any first oh. world nation. And I'm not even kidding you. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's on my list of things to mention today, but continue. Oh my God. Like from, from getting a basic answer from a police force to the fact that our police forces are increasingly not even listing the names of people accused of crimes to the fact that try getting an ATIP out of the, out of the federal government. It's not possible much less the provinces like like we have probably one of the lowest transparencies anywhere and yet these some of these listicles are scoring canada high in transparency it's nuts it's absolutely nuts and then then that brings me to my third issue with this rebuttal and that is a lot of the benefits that we have accrued to ourselves as canadians are a result of our inheritance mm -hmm. you know we have accrued a very good quality of life for ourselves as a result of you know 70 years of good luck and wealth and, you know, as a result, we also have a very good reputation national, internationally. A lot of the stuff that has allowed us to do that quality of life is under severe strain. And I think he's even safely to safe to say it's starting to come apart at the seams. Um, so if you are looking at like some random listicle saying, look, everything's really fine because it's so much worse elsewhere, you know, you're overlooking the fact that there's real work that needs to be acknowledged and done here. It, it, it gives you cover from to ignore the real issues. So I, I, to me, it's another one of those examples of saying like, and this is why Pierre Polyev is going to be the next prime minister. <laughs> like, because Pierre Polyev is not going to try and, you know, hand wave away legitimate problems by saying, but look, the WEF thinks we're great. I mean, the, Pierre's got some other issues with the WEF, which is, but, you know, you know, pick one, pick, pick your poison, really, is what I'm saying. Anyway, um, you this, know this, no. is, this is a little rant. I just I just went on a full rant. I think that's a dispatch. I don't think that's a column, but it just, this this drives me nuts. This just drives I, me nuts. Why don't we Vulcan mind meld healthcare and listicles into one good- Oh, that would be, that'd be too long. It'd be so long. Can we do the healthcare component in like a paragraph? Oh yeah, I don't think we should do a long one. Just do a really short, like, just like condense your column and then I'll, we'll just- um pivot from that into the list okay. of issue. well there i wanted to mention something and i i wasn't going to mention this on camera it was actually an unfortunate incident i was out on thursday night uh for, for drinks with a friend and um didn't drink a lot but you never know how those evenings are going to go so I, I left the car at home and I, I took a transit right just because you want to be responsible and mm -hmm. Uh, while I was on the, the subway, there was uh, a, uh, an individual on the subway who was um, mentally unbalanced in some way. And it was a really unfortunate incident where he was haranguing uh, a black family in, in, in ra racist terms. Oh, and awful. I was the only white guy in the area and he was yelling at me to come discipline my slaves. Wow. And yeah, it was it was it was a really unpleasant uh, encounter. Uh, the, the the individual who was having a, the, the mental health issue eventually stormed away, screaming, marching up and down the car. And I kind of I looked at the, the family. I'm like, are you guys OK? Like, it, was like, oh, it was all like nonverbal. Like, are you guys OK? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, it's OK. But it was a really uncomfortable incident. Right. And the the the, the family, the dad, the, the teenage, I felt terrible for them. Right. Like 
um I, I didn't realize at first what was happening they were way down the car i just heard sh- shouting and, and and racial slurs and then the guy came storming down the, the the train and pointed at me and said i need a white man to go control those slaves and then he just stormed down and i looked Whoa. down the car and there, there there was this family and they were obviously shaking i was like are you okay like there were other people as well i think everybody actually handled it fairly well there were other people in the car who were checking in on them they yeah. were obviously shaken and upset but they weren't they weren't physically harmed and then the guy, uh, the, the crazy dude got off at the next stop and stormed off into the night. And I just kind of remember thinking, like, I rode the subway a few more stops, got off where I was going. I just kind of, I was walking up the stairs and I was just thinking, like, that's not going to show up on a listicle, right? Like that, that, that person, I'm not angry at the person who was screaming those things. That, that person needs help. Like that's a system failure that was manifesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, be- most livable city in the world, as long as you're not riding the, the subway down line one at around nine and o'clock I, last night. And and when I was actually in Toronto, it was so it was so interesting that like, and again, I'm not naive about Toronto. It's just it's big city living to some extent. But I mean, stuff like stuff almost that almost that bad happened to me twice in the two weeks I was living there. So that just becomes really normal. Right? Oh, I mean, what happened last night was, was particularly unfortunate. That involved that, the family. That's, and, that's very nasty. But this is not i wasn't surprised i wasn't surprised to have an issue on the subway and i will be honest with you i do think it's gotten worse yeah i I agree like it when i was living in toronto what 10 15 years ago now oh no it not not you don't even go it's it's worse since covid oh really yeah interesting because i do remember there were some there were a couple of incidents when i was like in school like where you would have you know creepy dudes follow you or whatever like that that that's big city stuff but it it's worse. It's me... worse than the. It's worse than three years ago, and okay. I don't know yet if there's stats to prove that. And I also don't know how many of these incidents get reported. But you no, know, yeah. it was like you know what I mean. It's when the guy left the the train, and I, again the family was shaken. But I, I mean, feel so bad for that family. How would you even like? And like the other problem too is like if you confront the guy in a situation like that, nine times out of ten you're going to escalate it, and it's going to yeah. get physical. Yeah. Right. So sometimes it is best to just let the crazy run off. And, and especially and, since he was already leaving. But I mean, for yeah. a minute there, I was thinking, oh, God, this guy's going to get violent with somebody. I was the only white guy in the car. There were a few, a few Asian passengers, a few like uh, a few, um, uh, I guess, Indian or, or, or brown skin passengers. I don't know what their, their nationality was. And then this black family and so every, like, like, every, like the rest of us were all kind of, hey, everybody, OK, everybody, OK. And then but when the guy left and got off. But who, who the hell knows what that guy did? Like, he wandered off into the night ranting and screaming, right? So... And how do you, well, like, ask with the family, how do you explain that to your kids? Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, just awful. Yeah, I mean, the kids were teenagers, and I, I don't oh, okay. like, know, and I'm not saying yeah. that makes it right, but I mean, no, I think no, at least by then... You, you can, can have that can, conversation. Yeah, you you can explain it to them, but to, to yeah. kids? Oh. Anyway, world-class city. Um, world-class city. But no, I'm not. I'm not angry at that guy. That 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 man is a failure. Like that's a societal failure that that guy has not been given help to deal with with his problems, and because of that, other people are paying the price for it as well. All right, uh, this is this is a big pivot. Um, you we were talking about transparency a minute ago uh, and uh, Canadian listicles. I should have mentioned this last week. I'm I'm out of step chronologically on this one. Uh, Brenda Lucky and Bill Blair. We were talking about them a lot before we took our vacation at the start of July. Did you read their testimony to Parliament? No, oh God, you're going to make me read their testimony to Parliament. No, I won't. Um, so just to, to refresh uh, our, our our dear line community, 
we had said in late June that we actually thought it was plausible that the liberals never directed the the, the RCMP commissioner to reveal anything about guns. Possible, we, not plausible. Okay, <laughs> fine. Po- right, possible. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. possible. You had to you had to keep that possibility uh, yeah. available as an option. And and the way you could explain that is that Lucky was freelancing. Uh, Commissioner Brenda Lucky, National RCMP Director, probably knowing that the RCMP was going to look awful in the aftermath of the the Nova Scotia massacres in early 2020, wanted to suck up to the boss and wanted to be as helpful as possible. Like there was a there's a rationale. I didn't yeah. think that that was the most plausible rationale. It, it, there is an alternative explanation. Let's say it that way. The testimony before Parliament, I think, from the Liberals is, is uh, Minister Blair. It was ca- kind of exactly what you would expect it to be. There was no undue direction, blah, blah, blah. Lucky's testimony was more interesting. So she says her explanation for the whole thing. That, so just, just so the, the viewers and the listeners remember, there was this meeting shortly after the shooting in 2020. Two individuals at the meeting took separate notes contemporaneously and confirmed uh, that the, during the meeting, Brenda Lucky said, "I we need to get the details about the firearms that were used released. There's an upcoming gun control legislation, and I promised the prime minister we'll get this information out. The, the, the individuals at the meeting locally, the local officials took from that, that this was a political interference, right? That they were being told to expedite and alter their investigation to serve a liberal political goal. Minister Blair's comments are basically what he's already said. They're not worth spending any time on. What uh, Commissioner Lucky said, though, was interesting. She offered this as her explanation, where she had said, I had misunderstood previous information I had, and I had told the the government, my, my superiors in government, that that information would be released. And that is what I was telling my staff. It wasn't that I was compelling them. It was that I had already told my superiors that they would be releasing that and it would be helpful if they did. Two um, big... Okay. <laughs> so that's what that's what she spent a month coming up with. It seems like a lot of work to thread a needle here is what I'm saying. Two problems. Yeah. One. Why the fuck did she mention the upcoming gun control announcement? That's that's the that's the the giveaway here. That's the thing that cannot be explained. So even if we accept that Commissioner Lucky was just you know embarrassed to have to go back to the boss and be like, I'm sorry, Bill, they actually won't be releasing that information. My bad, I misunderstood that. The thing that torpedoes that is that she told her subordinates in the meeting that a new announcement on gun control was imminent. So the the best the best possible scenario that I can come up with here There's no for good the scenario liberals. For that. No, but the best one I can come up with here is that she had aligned this particular political goal so deeply with her mission as a as the commissioner of the RCMP that she had lost internal boundaries in terms of what was appropriate or not appropriate to ask her her officers to release. I still think that's disqualifying for her as a commissioner. I still think you're done. Like you, you, you can't be commissioner if you can't understand that boundary, but it's, I I could still see a hypothetical scenario where it was not Blair and the PMO compelling her to release this information or pressuring her to release this information. 
it could have been that she was just so aligned with what that those people wanted to do she that she just mission. that she made it her mission. Yeah. I still think that that is inappropriate and that just means that she's acting uh, her, she doesn't understand the boundary between her role as commissioner and her role as a, as a political agent and she has to resign but that would potentially save the government's ass yeah, if that's no, the interpretation. That's that's my exact view on this as well. You you speak for us both on that. The other really interesting thing though and this is why I I, th- I say it's relevant to the transparency issue. I don't have the notes in front of me right now, but as I was reading through the article, I was just laughing and I, I dropped a few bookmarks in um, on my screen as I was reading this because, oh my God, has her language been coached? So she said, like she was asked, hey, did you say that I that you had promised the government this information? And she's like, I may have used the word promise, but I did not mean in any formal way. What the fuck does that mean? Like, did she and Bill Blair have to exchange rings? Is there a ceremony? Like, are witnesses required? Do they have to, like, you know, do, like, a little blood mixing ceremony, like Cleons, when they cut their hands with knives? Like, I'm sorry, Commissioner, if your line of defense on whether or not you said that we'd promised the government is that there was no formal promise, I didn't... What's a formal promise? No one was expecting you to marry the minister. Like, like no one thought we had to march you down the aisle to make it official here. Promises. Okay. Like I, this is, what's the difference between a promise and a formal promise? I mean, one of them involves you putting your hand on the Bible, I guess. Yeah. Or signing a contract. Yeah. Like, so, so that, that was a, just a ridiculous statement. Reading through this, like the language they are using, and I, and for the written dispatch, I will go through and I will, I will find more examples of this. But there are so many weasel words in yeah. in the testimony that you talked a few minutes ago about transparency. Their testimony was a masterclass on sounding like you're answering the questions, but you're not. Mm-hmm. So let like shove that listicle up any available orifice and don't tell me we're a transparent country here when the when the national commissioner of our federal police agency goes before the legislature and tells them yeah maybe it was a promise but it wasn't like a formal promise yeah okay thanks commissioner we'll 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 be sure to give that uh due consideration so i'll I'll whip up a little something on that i should have done it last week to be honest like it's a bit it's a bit stale now but it's August. Like it's yeah. August. It's fine. No one cares. It's fine. Um, also, what I love about all this is that all of this will happen, and like there will be no accountability for any of it. Of course like, not. No. Like, like we know Lucky's not going to resign. Like in a in a properly functioning democracy, she would. Oh, probably, but, like, she would have. Uh, she should have been gone six weeks ago. Yeah, but I mean, like that's not going to happen here. So anyway, moving on. Guns. Canada, uh, number one place to live in the world. Number, number one. Number one place in the number world. Number one. Number one. Guns, guns, guns. Um, guns. I was going to talk about the Supreme Court. Yeah, just give me a minute on guns. Oh, you and your guns. Me and my guns. Well, technically not my guns. I, I'm not. I'm not affected by this. Um, the uh, the federal government announced just a few minutes a few minutes ago that uh, well, about an hour ago now, I guess that there would be a some sort of order in council or cabinet order to ban the importation of handguns into Canada uh, effective nearly immediately. It would be a week after next, I think, which by federal terms is basically as fast as things can go so is that is that that's legal handguns yeah so what it actually means is that um gun stores will no longer be able to import merchandise 
for sale. There are, I believe there's a few domestic handgun manufacturers left in this country. I, I'm not even sure about that. But overwhelmingly, if you buy a legal handgun in Canada, you're buying something that was built in the United States or Europe or South yeah, America. Yeah, so if, you, if, you, if you're actually a target pistol shooter, which I believe is still an Olympic sport, you're SOL the, then. I think there are narrow exemptions for professional sports shooters. I'd, I'd have to go. I mean, this isn't an, like, I haven't seen the text of it yet. This okay. is just something that was said. But just two things jumped out at me. And that we can put this in our narrative of why Pierre Polyev can easily win the next election. One of them is that Marco Mendocino is again bullshitting the Canadian people, where in his statement announcing this, he's like, you know, with this import freeze, uh, we will immediately begin reducing the number of handguns in this country. No, minister, you'll begin reducing the number of handguns held by like multiply vetted, carefully yeah. screened legal owners. Yeah. The criminals are still going to be smuggling theirs in. Words matter, Minister. You're missing a word there. Legal handguns. You will be bringing down the legal handguns owned in this country, which are used in crimes, not on a zero basis, but on a vanishingly rare basis. Lawful Canadian gun owners, the stats have long shown this, commit crime, violent crime in particular, at a rate well below the general population, because of course we do. We're background checked. We're vetted. We're screened. No one else is. Like, you should not be surprised that like one segment of society that is carefully scrutinized behaves better than the rest. The other thing that I just had a laugh about. So this is going to be either an ordering council or cabinet level executive order. I'm not sure what exactly the terminology is, but this is an executive order of some kind pending future legislation. And Melanie Jolie, who will as foreign affairs minister controls import and export permits. At the press conference, she said, oh, Marco and I got to talking and we realized we could do this so much faster and then we'll, like, we'll, we'll get the legislation in place eventually, but we can begin delivering our gun control plans to Canadians sooner by using executive action. The Liberals need to pick a lane because on the one hand, in particular about the Commissioner Lucky thing, Bill Blair's been saying, hey, we, we weren't rushing anything after Porta Peak. Our gun control plans had been in the work for a long, long time. On the other hand, you have Melanie Jolie on Friday making it sound like she and Marco had a gab fest and came up with a new idea of how to do gun control in this country. Well, the other, the other, the other thing I would point to here is that when the Obama administration began to use executive uh, orders to in, um, enforce their immigration policies, but of course they, they couldn't get anything through the, the House and Senate, this was hugely controversial. It was like you're essentially um, circumventing, using executive orders yep. to circumvent um, the ordinary uh, legislative process. And it worked for a couple of years until Trump gets in and then he starts basically governing by executive order. Yeah, so, it's funny like, how that happens. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. So if you're going to normalize essentially circumventing the legislative process by governing through executive orders and counsel, sorry, executive or orders and counsel, then just that's fine. Just be prepared that you're handing the tool to, to Prime Minister Pierre. Oh no, and these things have the always same. existed. Like there's well, nothing new. Existed, about but, but no, there's nothing new. But I mean, as you we're using them you, to bypass Parliament. Yeah, but I mean, the more you normalize these sorts of tools, the more that your uh, political opponents are going to feel empowered to normalize these sorts of, sorts of tools. This is a this is a race to the bottom. That's yeah. what I'm saying here. Yeah. Right. Well, what have I told you before? I mean, I, I, I once again quote my my good buddy Chris Selly, which is to say that the liberals sincerely believe they are not the kind of people who would do the things they do. So the, you cannot explain this to a liberal because it, the, the, it is 
but we're the good guys. We're the good guys. And it's good when we do it because we're doing it for good reasons. And if someone yeah. else does it later, well, th that's bad because they're, they're, they're bad. They're, they're bad guys. Bad they're doing it for bad reasons. So, okay. So I will, I will do a little blend on both uh, Minister Mendocino, once again, having difficulty with the truth um, and uh, Melanie Jolie basically casually admitting that they are completely freelancing national policy on the, and using executive orders it's like, well, you know, we had, we had a little chat and we're like, Hey, we could do it this way. Like nothing screams coherent, disciplined, organized federal leadership. Then, you know, we put our heads together and decided to do an executive order. Thanks guys. That's, that's really reassuring. All right. I'll, I'll yield the floor back to you. Supremes. Supremes. The Supremes. Yeah. So once again, uh, as per Canadian, as per proud Canadian tradition, an organization in trouble has decided that they're going to hire a former uh, Supreme Court justice to help them sort through their issues. As if, firstly, we know that Hockey Can is in the midst of of, of kind of a, a series of scandals involving payouts towards sexual harassment and sexual um, assault, and so they need to address their own internal issues, etc. No problems there. Yep. Here's my issue. Why do we assume that a Supreme Court justice who is retired is particularly well qualified to help an organ a, a sports organization go through their internal policies and procedures to find out if there's things that they can improve? Cinder what, ref. What, like, or like a human resources professional would actually probably be better qualified or to do that. Or a labor that. lawyer or yeah. Or a labor lawyer or something like that. The reason why this organization has decided to hire a Supreme Court justice, as so many have done before, is because they're going to piggyback on the high sort of um, degree of respect and trust that the Canadian public has in the Supreme Court and try to sort of pit, like, like paint it onto their um, organization. They're, they're piggybacking on the credibility of the Supreme Court. And the problem with this is that it literally has become like an old joke from like, oh, the no, Lee scandal. Right. It's, it's, people laughed. People I was laugh. at lunch yesterday with a buddy yeah. when this news came out. We'd looked at the headline and we just chuckled. We just chuckled. I mean, like from the Wee stuff to the SNC scandal to the fact that we've got Barbara McLaughlin basically using this, the Canadian Supreme Court's credibility to to paint a patina of democracy uh, over uh, Hong Kong right armed now. Armed forces sexual misconduct scandal. And armed forces. I mean, that even that that even doesn't bother me so much because I know a little bit about that. But uh, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have a a, a judge serve in this way. The problem is that whether or not the Supreme Court justices seem to know it or not, um, they are being used opportunistically and exploitatively to credibility um, uh, tarnished institutions and 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 try and, and and create the illusion that these are organizations that are taking some of this stuff seriously. And to me, honestly, I look at this and I'm like, you know what? The Americans might have it right with life term limits for the Supreme Court. They might have it right, or 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 they might have it right with the idea of when you retire from the Supreme Court or die from it, you're done. You're done. You're out of the public space. You're well compensated. You don't do stuff on the side. See you at the golf club. See you at the golf club. That's yeah. that's your job now. Like you, you don't run for politics. Play eighteen. Because you can't have a, a habit or a country's habit of like the people take going from these absolute top roles positions of what should be almost sacred trust within a within a public institution and then using that credibility to try and rehabilitate tarnished organizations like it's just you can't do that because that undermines the whole trust that people have in the law and the system it's the system and the institution as a whole so I, it, I, it it it's now becoming a bad joke like and, and i do mean that literally it's a I'm, bad joke 
So I agree with everything you said, and I think you should write that up. I would like to add one uh, point. <laughs> so the federal government from the prime minister on down and certainly the minister of sport, who's name i don't think i've ever known i would say i forget her name but i don't think i've ever known it whoever the minister of sport is um christy duncan no she used to be and i knew her uh, name because she she actually had like a profile we're, and we're bad we're bad journalists well no I, you know what no we're not i mean when, when was the last time you needed to know the minister of sport like sorry like mm. we i have limited brain brain capacity here and i don't give it over to that ministry um they have been riding hockey Canada hard. Like, you know, like the, the PMs say Canadians expect wholesale change. The, the minister of sports suspended their funding. So what did hockey Canada do? Exactly what the liberals did to buy themselves yeah. time when global news was like taking a flamethrower to the upper echelons of the Canadian uh, armed forces, senior command. Yep. So uh, uh, listeners and viewers will remember this, but uh, the incredible work by Mercedes Stevenson and Amanda Connolly at Global News um, basically blew open a scandal involving, up until very recently, the senior most officer of the Canadian Armed Forces, who had been has now pled guilty in criminal court to sexual misconduct and trying to cover it up. And the prime minister's office, our feminist prime minister's office, was told that the only four-star flag officer in the Canadian Armed Forces was banging a subordinate or, or something. I mean, like they've always said they didn't fully have all the details, but they were told in writing and Global News got the emails. <laughs> like it is in writing that there was an allegation of sexual misconduct against the commander of the Canadian Armed Forces. And the PMO, yeah, well, we, yeah, we looked into it, but it never really went anywhere. Big scandal, very embarrassing. Katie Telford, the, the, P, the PM chief of staff, testifying before parliament, grudgingly admitting, yeah, I guess we should have done more. No shit. Um, and what do the feds do? They appoint a retired Supreme Court justice to do a review. So I don't know if Hockey Canada did this as an exquisite middle finger to the PMO. I suspect- Oh, no, I, I suspect not. I suspect that this, that this has just become so ingrained now. Yep. I, I agree. And I also think probably they're in survival mode and they're doing anything to buy time while they try to figure out what other skeletons are in their closet. But even if it wasn't a deliberate, exquisite extended middle finger to the PMO, it's still an exquisite extended middle finger to the PMO. It may be a coincidental one, but I delight in it because what what's the PM going to say? Well, how dare they attempt to defer responsibility by appointing a retired Supreme Court justice to review it? Sorry, man. Good for the goose. Good for the gander. Yeah, except for the fact that this, in this case, this is good for neither the goose nor the gander. This is just, this is actually this is this is institutional. This is damaging to the institution in the long term. This is that that's what this is because everybody I, understands that this is a political ploy. ploy. Well, I don't and think if, it helped if, the PMO or the military well, either. No, and the problem is like if the Supreme Court justices themselves don't know that they're being used and exploited in this way, then they're daft and like they should get a clue. They might have they might have drunk too much of their own bathwater and truly maybe. believe they are. Yeah, maybe. On a, I mean, you do you do get that sense from McLaughlin, right? When when she's called to account on the on the Hong Kong stuff. Yeah, but no, you, uh, anyway, you just don't understand what I'm doing is actually fine. Oh, oh well. Well, well I mean, sorry. I mean, who who am I to question the judgment of a of a Supreme Court justice? I mean, anyway. Uh, last little note. Like, I don't want to necessarily dwell on this too much, but Sherry DeNovo 
former uh, Toronto City Councillor, and now I believe uh, a woman of cloth, uh, a pastor, I think. Yes, I believe so. Has basically tried to claim that monkeypox is airborne and not an STD. And to me, this is really interesting because there's a, firstly, I think COVID broke everyone and it broke progressives in a slightly different way than it broke conservatives, but everybody was broken in the end. And maybe I want to quote that line from a movable feast in Hemingway. Like we're all broken in the end. Some of us bend and some of us, anyway. Um, but yeah, it, it broke progressives in a really interesting way that it, it made them extremely overtuned to viral threats, I do think. Um, I understand that there is a desire not to stigmatize. I mean, we've, we've written about monkeypox before. There's there's an understandable desire not to stigmatize particularly gay men. There's an ugly um, echo of the 80s. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of, of the 80s. Completely get that. But there's a line, difference between stigmatizing gay men and... Lying to them. Lying to them and lying to the public yeah. about what the what this actual disease is and what the risks of it are and or or worst what I think Genova is doing and that is sort of escaping into just sheer fantasy land because the facts are politically unpalatable, and the problem with this is that uh, because so many of our public agencies can't seem to just be blunt and straightforward about where the risks are allocated, um, what you have is 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 the building of of a kind of a reactionary backlash to this. That is going to that is going to wind up paradoxically stigmatizing a lot of these people because people are going to be just like it's almost like that South Park syndrome that that like that, that there's like like the more you make something taboo the more the more tempting it becomes to pop the bubble and pop the bubble hard and I think South Park even did a horrible skit on this already so like you know what I mean like it's it's just it, it, look monkeypox isn't airborne it isn't it's no it's and it's not it's it's an STD in the sense that of. it is. Like you it's, can get it from non-sexual contact you can if it's get very it from, close. Yes, you can get it from non-sexual contact, certainly, but sexual contact appears to be the primary mode of transmission. Does this Currently, mean that straight yeah, people? It is. Yep. Yeah. D does that mean that straight people are not at risk? No, oh. because because as we've seen with AIDS, there are people who have sex both with men and with women, and like therefore you can cross you can cross into like these streams are not separate. These streams are not there's cross there's there's cross um uh, infection across these these particular uh, demographic groups so like and we saw that with aids like we, we know that that's the case we also know that with mon monkeypox the case fatality rate is very low um and in this case we also have access to um reasonably effective vaccine reasonably effective vaccines although not very much of it so it does mean that if we are going to allocate vaccine we're going to have to allocate that vaccine to Smartly. the most vulnerable groups yeah like gay men <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean like you know so like it's it's just you you this is this is uh cutting off your nose despite your face territory you know what the, i mean and and the, i just um, think that this is one of those like sherry nova's pieces or her, that tweet claiming this is airborne is still up and it's just it just isn't i don't know what to tell you like it isn't so over the course of the pandemic, for obvious reasons, I've developed pretty good relations with public health and guys, epidemiologists, infectious disease experts. I got to interview these guys on a regular basis. I had Dr. Isaac Bogosh on my radio show just today, and we were, we were chatting about this. He's great. So, pardon? He's great. Yeah, Bogosh he is. is really yeah, great. no, um, I, I got a lot of time for him. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about, about this exact issue. I think one of the issues here, and I want to I push back a little bit on something you said, just a little bit, where you okay. had said public communication hasn't been good about this. I actually think communication from government has been pretty good about this. I think the problem is that some of the, the people with big profiles in the community are stepping in and going, whoa, 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 come on, government, let's not stigmatize these people. 
monkeypox is airborne, right? I think mm-hmm. actually the, the 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 gay community, particularly in Toronto, where like where I, I have like where I follow the local news, I talk to the local public health guys. My understanding is they're getting great uptake from the gay community. Okay. Um, there's cool. a, so there's a facility downtown, a community center called the Five One Nine. That's right in the gay village. They've been having vaccine clinics for for monkeypox, awesome. and they've had lineups around the block. Super. Communication has been good. Uptake has been good. Well, and this so could I be also communi- where I'm kind of cross-contaminating probably my own, my own, I think communication in the States has been a little bit more hit and miss is what I would I, say. So maybe I this is less of an know. issue in Canada than it is, has been in the States, but there's I, been tons of examples of like governments in the United States, not like dancing around who's vulnerable to this. I, you know, it's funny though. I mean, during the pandemic, you and I have often been critical of government communications during COVID, like n- no doubt about that. But I think one of the intangibles uh, in, in modern crisis communications is that on Twitter and other social media platforms, TikTok apparently uh, uh, very, very much. I don't, I don't do TikTok, but I've seen some of them. No, because we're adults. And what the problem we is- We do Twitter, which is way Twitter, more like, like grownups. Like, like grownups. You can have the best government communication in the world, but if 40,000 people are only hearing it filtered through a, like a, a TikTok influencer, you're at the yeah, mercy of the, the TikTok influencer here. Yeah. So I think our government comms on monkeypox probably haven't been perfect in, in Ontario, Toronto, but they've been good. And then you have Sherry DeNovo kind of going, well, I, I think we can't be... We think we can do better. Therefore, I'm going to tell people monkeypox is, is airborne. I've talked to like five epidemiologists in the last two weeks. I'm like, is monkeypox airborne? The answer is no. They're watching it carefully. The, the, the virus does seem to be behaving differently than it traditionally has, and they don't know fully why, and they're watching it. But the cases that they know of are all traced back overwhelmingly to either men who have sex with men, direct physical skin-to-skin contact, or people who are in the immediate circle of someone who is traced back to that. We aren't getting a situation of some guy walking in off the street and being like, I got monkeypox and I must have picked it up off someone on the bus or at work or at the grocery store. That's not happening. What is happening, as far as we know, is that people who have prolonged physical contact with each other, sexual or otherwise, are passing it along. I, I, I suspect Sherry's heart's in the right place. I, I, I actually, I got a lot of time for her. I have nothing, I don't have a mean oh, thing to I, say no, I mean, No, I mean, it's impossible to dislike Sherry. She's a nice person, but like it's, this is, this is, to me, this just gets back to one of those examples where, as I said, I think COVID kind of broke everybody. It, we, what's funny is you mentioned how it broke people on the left and the right a bit differently here. Mm-hmm. One of the meta themes of this conversation is just how people think it's okay when they do it. Like, how many people on the left wing would lose their mind at some quack basically going, oh, natural exposure to COVID is better than vaccination. And they'd be like, it's not up to YouTube influencers to give public health advice. But then we have people on the left saying monkeypox is airborne, where every epidemiologist who goes on records going, we have no evidence of that. But it's okay because it's but it's good when we do it because we're good and we're doing it for good reasons. The other the other meta theme is that when you get into a cycle of polarization in the in the politics, essentially, what each side each side becomes so enwrapped in their own sort of self righteousness that they fail to understand the degree to which they are feeding sure. the other side. So essentially, it it becomes a self 
self-fulfilling um, polarization cycle where the left does this thing and then the right reacts and then the left is this thing and then the right reacts and the left and the, the left is like oh my god you horrific reactionary assholes when they are being horrific reactionary assholes and then the left takes the response by going even further and the horrific action reactionary assholes go like whoa well now we need to go even further and the problem is that we're in one of these sorts of um cycles where nobody is able to step back and say you know what? I'm actually feeding this problem. My intentions are good, but I'm feeding this the, the cycle of polarization here with my good intentions. And there's well, no because there's no goodwill and no institutional sort of guardrails on anything anymore. Um, the assumption of 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 good faith among anybody is just gone. As our mutual friend Colby Kosh once said, it was such it was such a short but elegant sentence. And what I think, you know, Colby and I have known each other for years, and I was his editor for many years, so I've I've, I've read more Colby Kosh columns than most. He's, a, he's such a beautiful writer, and he had one sentence once, and I, 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 I don't want to mangle it, but it was powerful and short, and he, it was writing about exactly that, and he said, they're called reactionaries for a reason. They're yeah. reacting. Yeah. Like, like yeah, it's, and yeah, but pe people, people don't want to acknowledge that, because if they're morally right, it doesn't matter if it's unhelpful. Yep. That's right. Um. Okay. So, oh, do we want to say anything about the globe and mail story this week about the ukrainian staff oh we do i've actually asked our our people on the ground in in ukraine if they want to look into that um see if we can get some reactions Ooh. so yeah uh, I, or I like an actual it. reported out piece is it okay. yeah yeah for dispatch purposes do we have to say anything in the next 24 hours uh, no i don't i don't think we have to say anything in the next 24 hours it's a really really good piece it totally deserves more play and i this is why i think we should follow it up with a reported piece Okay, so I will do guns, I will do lucky, and I will uh, toot the horn on uh, the ladies, uh, two weeks in a row of uh, female c contributors. Okay, and, so I'll uh, do rebuttal by listicle as yeah, our second I, and dispatch. I'll, I'll also laud Tomb for, for his integrity. Yeah, give yeah. him a shout out. Okay, so I'll do rebuttal by listicle, and I'll just basically repeat my rant there. Um, I'll do Supreme Court as a running joke. Credibility okay. fucking suck. Um, and then I think I might do a thing just on Sherry DeNovo, but just like, I'll put up her tweet and just be like, yeah, it's not so, important. So who, who does healthcare? So you don't oh, want, I think, I think you should do healthcare just because you can just summarize what you did for the TVO column and just do a, a, a brief two or three paragraphs. And then just maybe just add notes that it's Alberta, it's Atlantic, Canada, it's BC. It's like this, this appears to be across, across Canada thing, but um it's particularly acute in 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 ontario because of course you guys have been running it closer to the course closer to the red for longer yeah you know it's I and mean, this this has already gone long, on long enough but you know what i find really interesting about this provincial liberals have gotten awfully quiet hmm. i mean they, i mean the, ford just won his his second term right but that was only a few weeks ago basically ford is a one term plus a few weeks premier Mm -hmm. And this is a decadal problem. Mm -hmm. The provincial liberals ran this province for the 15 years before this, and the healthcare system was whittled away to nothing. Mm -hmm. And I, I tell you, Jen, I mean, th this is this is no bullshit. Um, I I spend time now idly googling uh, what different healthcare procedures cost in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. It's I've looked up what it would cost to have health insurance. Global health insurance about five thousand US a year yeah. per person. So four people in my family. Do I want to be spending twenty grand US on that? Not really. Do I Depends trust the Ontario healthcare? Get. 
I don't trust the Ontario healthcare system. And it's like, I trust every person who works for it. They're, they're doing their absolute best, but. Well, there was something you told me today, which, which we're still, we're still looking into. So I won't say anything more about it, but I, you told me this and I was like, if I heard that as a woman in Ontario, in a particular condition, I'd be gone. There's just no fucking way I'd be messing around with that. For what it's worth. I have no, I have nothing to report on there, except I now have conflicting info on that. So I'm going to have to keep digging. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Um, on these cheerful notes, uh, anything else? Nope. So, okay. So I will do healthcare guns, lucky ladies and tomb, but the latter two are just quick little notes. And I'll do, I'll do rebuttal by listicle Supreme court. And I'll just a quick sort of Sherry DeNovo, like, Look, just because the person's on the left doesn't mean that they should get away with saying crazy shit like this. Yeah, and I also just, I more. mean, in a, in a basic rule, stop stop using a large social media platform to Bigfoot public health communications. Yeah, you know what? We should really just all get off social media. That's actually the real answer here. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, podcast and video Friday, written dispatch Saturday. Yeah, you want to do that? That sounds great. Well, we, yeah, we, we, we put up the Rempel Garner column later in the day on Friday, so we'll let that breathe as the written piece for a while. Cool. How's it doing? Okay. Enjoy your fall weather. I'm going to go sweat my, uh, was, well, you know. I, I guess, know. Yeah. I, yeah. I I'm a married woman, Matt. I understand. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, all right. That's it. Have an amazing weekend, everybody. This is The Line's continuing experimental podcast. For Jen Gerson, I'm Matt Gurney. Take good care.